Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners with another episode of our Edge podcast. And today, we have with us Dr. Tuk Vu, who is the co-founder of OmniLab and Cambria. Uh, and it's really interesting uh, that uh, we were able to arrange our uh, this, this podcast. A, a good friend of mine, uh, Mai Long, who's uh, I know from the New York blockchain community, started working with uh, with Cambria and said, you gotta, you gotta talk to these guys. They're doing some amazing stuff. And, and as, as it turns out, another, uh, another friend of mine, uh, is also, has also been working, uh, with you guys. And we, we haven't met in person, but I'm you know, very excited to, uh, to talk to you and, and, and hear the story. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for joining us for the podcast, Took. Yeah. Hi, Ed. Uh, very nice to be here. Uh, and uh, thank you for inviting us. Great. So first, I'd like to start off just by uh, understanding a bit of your, your background. Could you talk a, a, about you know, your background, how you, the work you've done that's gotten you into technology, and uh, what has brought you to definitely. become a, an entrepreneur? Yeah, definitely. Uh, so I actually grew up in Vietnam. And uh, I came to the U.S. for uh, school. I, I have been in the U.S. for about 20 years uh, already. Uh, did my undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, Ph.D. at Stanford, uh, both in computer science, focusing on AI. Uh, after Stanford, uh, I started a company uh, with a couple other people, and we were focusing uh, on the social analytics, uh, basically trying to understand the relationships of user uh, on social networks such as uh, Facebook. Uh, we started the company in 2010 and then we got acquired by Google uh, at the end of 2011. Uh, and I stayed at Google for three years working on uh, Google Plus and then Android. Uh, and then after Google, uh, I started a company uh, called OmniLabs with uh, Jared uh, and Tingsi. Jared was my roommate back then at Carnegie Mellon. And so, you know, we, we worked very well uh, together. We did a bunch of research projects in robotics. And so our view at, uh, at the time when we started OmniLab was that we really uh, wanted to build a product for the consumer space, a robot, a robot for the consumer space, because we haven't seen that much traction uh, there. You know, the, the only uh, kind of like uh, robots, if you will, that sold millions of copies is the Roomba, the vacuum cleaner, right? Uh, but besides that, we only have maybe toys or some entertainment robots. Right. And so we ask ourselves why, you know, uh, we have a, a lot of amazing technologies uh, already developed in the field for industrial manufacturing space. Uh, but it's just consumer, we don't see anything. And our hypothesis was that uh, maybe because the cost was still too high, right? Um, the value that uh, these robotics products offer to our end user um, is not uh, is still lower than the cost they have to pay, uh, and so you know uh, as long as the the value prop is not clear and it's not high enough, people are not gonna 
uh, you know, buy uh, you know, these products. And so we set out to uh, kind of develop something that have very concrete value proposition and uh, you know, uh, low cost so that uh, people can buy them um, and, and you know, can adopt them uh, easier. And so that's, that's how Omnilab started uh, in 2015. Um, and then at the beginning of last year, uh, which we saw the whole blockchain um, crypto space kind of exploded. And uh, uh, very interestingly, my, um, a lot of research I did back then uh, at Stanford was involved uh, with game theory. And so, <laughs> so that's what really caught my uh, attention uh, right away uh, with the blockchain. Because it, in a sense, um, the token models allow one to de redesign uh, like a, kind of like a new game, right? Uh, for an existing industry or uh, business model to really incentivize um, all the stakeholders uh, so that they can, you know, uh, uh, perform or behave in certain ways. Um, and so, uh, so we, we, uh, we thought, you know, that's an opportunity for us uh, to design this new open platform for AI and robotics so that, you know, with the token models, with the game theory, uh, we can really accelerate. Uh, what we are trying to build with Armilab, which is developing technology uh, in the AI and robotics space that can be adopted uh, you know, widely by uh, uh, people in society. Um, and so uh, we started to think a lot about Cambria and um, uh, kind of speed it off with like a separate project uh, towards the end of last year. Um, and so now we have Armilab and Cambria uh, running in parallel. You can think of Cambria is like Linux, um, uh, non-profit uh, building ecosystem. And then Army Labs is kind of Ubuntu, you know, providing different services back to Cambria, but also help commercialize the technology coming out of Cambria. Um, I can go more into details uh, oh, yeah, of yeah, Cambria. We'll, yeah, we'll but, definitely get yeah. into it. But I, I'm, I'm interested in your, your, your take partly on why consumer robotics haven't really taken off. I know... I can think of yeah. you know some of the work that you know, uh, like there was a Jibo robot yeah. and uh, a number of you know crowdfunded projects over the past few years. But you know what are the what what have been the the big challenges with uh, with 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 consumer robotics in in your view? Uh, yeah, definitely. So uh, so like the the biggest uh, you know uh, issue is that the cost is still very high compared to the value that the product will deliver uh, to the user, right? Um, so most of the ro robots out there are still kind of like an entertainment uh, uh, use case. And so, you know, people probably not going to spend a thousand or more than a thousand dollars just to buy uh, a product that, you know, they can uh, talk to, you know, see some dances, <laughs> you know, like the, the value that, uh, yeah, the, the, the novelty is going to wear out very quickly, you know, um, per se. Uh, and then another issue is that uh, technologies are sometimes very optimistic. <laughs> yeah. you, can, yeah. you can see quite a few, you know, Kickstarter uh, products out there that uh, promise the, the world, right, <laughs> to the user. Uh, but it's hard. It's, it's, you know, the robotics development is very, very hard. Uh, whether because it involves many different expertise, right? And so not only on the software AI part, but also on the hardware manufacturing part. 
And so now, you know, putting all these challenges together, uh, all of a sudden, you know, you will either blew up the cost and the time to develop the product, or you cannot deliver on the promises. And, you know, that in turn will kind of harm the um, consumer perception of this stage as well, right? which is something that, you know, unfortunate. Are, are there really are there meaningful differences in the technologies that are being applied between industrial robots and uh, and and consumer robots, or you know how applicable has you know have have some of the innovations in uh, you know, for instance collaborative robotics and in, in industrial technology uh, you know, been able to translate to uh, or how do you see the value of that? Uh, applying to some of the work that you're doing around Cambria? Yeah, that's a fantastic uh, question. Um, so, uh, so industrial manufacturing robotics, uh, you know, have been uh, making a lot of good progress, right? So now we have robots in, you know, like all the big factories in the world, uh, robots working in warehouses uh, and, you know, logistics uh, purposes and stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, they, it's been um, a lot of good progress there. Uh, but if you think about it, the, the cost is still very high. So each robot's arm is going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? And so when we translate that to the consumer world, uh, you know, there's a huge gap there. And so uh, so that's the, 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 the biggest challenge. So the, the technology kind of stays around in the industrial space and hasn't really trickled over to the consumer space yet, uh, just because of the, the, the cost and the mindset um, in, that, in there. Uh, however, we see a lot of good progress in terms of software uh, for, you know, like AI uh, application uh, controlling uh, for, like, for example, uh, these arms, right, collaborative robots uh, to make, it, make sure that it's safer in the uh, environment with humans around. Uh, and those software, you know, can be um, readily, uh, you know, transfer over uh, to the consumer space and, you know, to deploy in, in different applications. Um, and so I'm, I'm quite excited uh, uh, in that sense. Uh, and also one uh, optimistic uh, view is that, you know, a lot of these costs are coming down. Uh, people are more, you know, conscious about the cost factor now. And so hopefully we'll see... Uh, like more kind of highly capable arms at a much lower cost um, for the consumer space available soon. Great. Could you could you talk about what you see as the? Uh, I mean, your your vision for uh, how robot robotics and robots can uh, can enhance our our daily life and and our uh, the. The, the the value prop for the consumer. How how have you been thinking about that? And are there are there some potential use cases that you see in the future that uh, that will become a lot more practical as costs continue to decline? Mm -hmm. um, there are a couple of ways that uh, you know I've been thinking uh, about this. So one is I believe that uh, affordable, capable robots provide access to uh, affordable labor for the uh, mass uh, consumers. And so if you think about, right, you know, like labor's costs are, are rising, um, especially for tasks in the home or in hospital, restaurant, right? Um, so 
like the the wealthy class would be able to uh, hire caregivers uh, or people that can help them clean the houses and stuff like that, right? Uh, but the cost is high. But now with the uh, affordable robotics uh, application, uh, we can provide this kind of labor uh, to you know much more, uh, larger range of um, of people, and this in turn would free them so that they can focus. Uh, their energy and effort on uh, more interesting tasks uh, uh, and activities. And then the second angle is that uh, robots can augment the existing services uh, that have been provided you know, around the world. Uh, so, for example, a couple of different verticals that we've been pursuing and, and see um, huge traction is uh, senior care. So, you know, uh, in the U.S., a lot of the seniors live by themselves, right? And the cost of caregivers are on the rise. You know, it costs maybe on average five, six thousand uh, dollars a month um, to hire a caregiver, and there's a huge shortage uh, on the other hand of caregivers as well. Uh, but you know, we're saying that the, the caregivers' uh, services can be augmented uh, by robots, so that they don't have to sit in the home for 10, 12 hours. And, you know, most of the time are not being productive. And so now we can deploy a robot there, um, allow the caregivers to dial in remotely, uh, control the robot, providing the services uh, when necessary. And, you know, maybe just come over for a much shorter time. So that's one of the vertical that we see, you know, a lot of uh, potential there. Uh, the second vertical that, uh, uh, you know, also very interesting is education. Um, there are a lot of children uh, are missing school uh, because of serious illness, because of injuries or uh, disability, right? And, um, you know, the, no matter how much the parents try uh, to provide uh, tutoring or homeschool for these children, it's not the same as going to school, um, you know, having the same curriculum with the teachers uh, and, you know, interact with their uh, classmates, right? Uh, it's, it's a much different world when you know the kid can get out and interact with people and learn um, in the in the school environment. Uh, and so uh, we have been deploying several robots uh, for uh, kids like this um, uh, that had to stay at home to remotely dive into a robot, control it, drive around in the school, attend classes, uh, ask questions, uh, interact with friends, even have like breakout session, discussion, things like that. Um, really fascinating to see how much uh, we can change the uh, kind of like the, the, the emotion state um, of uh, a kid uh, when the kid can uh, go and interact with uh, their friends. Uh, so those are the two verticals that I'm very excited uh, in. And then there are a couple of other verticals, uh, for example, in the food industry, uh, we see you know, an increasing in robots that helping with uh, prepping food, uh, especially in restaurants uh, or like a uh, coffee shop, right? <laughs> Robot that can make uh, right. cafe. Yeah. And so, you know, those are also uh, quite uh, interesting uh, as well. Uh, and or in the uh, hospita hospitality uh, vertical, robots that can deliver, uh, you know, things to the room. Um, that also be uh, being uh, pilot in pilot for a couple of uh, places. Yeah, those are uh, those are some great use cases. I, I know the telepresence 
uh, robot robotics have certainly made some uh, a, a lot of advances. I I, I laugh. I, I think you may have seen the Big Bang Theory show where yeah. the main character Sheldon creates his own shellbot telepresence robot. So it's it's hard to get <laughs> hard to get that image out of your out of your head once you've seen it. But it it I I've seen. I know that the Beam robots, for instance, have really provide such uh, you know, such a uh, enhanced experience for people who are for working remotely too but they but but you're right I mean I think they the first this these earlier generations have been pretty expensive and, and not uh, not that easily accessible to you know to kind of the uh, match them business. yeah, yeah. But, but another issue is that you know, I think they've been focusing a lot in the enterprise market, right? So, like, you know, for remote uh, workers. Um, but there are a lot of alternative uh, technology there, too, with video conferencing, you know, being, you know, being around for a much longer time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we see the opportunity in kind of like semi or non-structured environment, uh, for example, in the home or in restaurant, right? Where it's a little bit more chaotic, uh, when uh, and there are not that many uh, alternative uh, technical solutions um, available yet, and so that's where we, we we believe that we can bring a lot more value to our user. I was uh, really I've been fascinated to follow some of the the thinking around creating software for robots, and and I. I know that uh, you know. As, as you think about robots, I'd love to get your, um, you know, your your view on on what some of the the big engineering challenges are. At least from a software standpoint, there is. I know there is that the concept of Moravex paradox, where it's really simple for uh, for robots to do, you know, a whole bunch of. Uh, some often very complicated tasks, but but the but the simple tasks that say a three year old human child could figure out, like where the door, if, if something's a door or a bookcase, or just navigating around a room, that that that's those are those are some of the most difficult problems to uh, to solve, you know, for 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 robotics and uh, what what do you see as as some of the uh, the the, the most interesting technolo- technology and, and engineering challenges when you're uh, when you're when you're looking at at, uh, at building the next generation of robots. Um, yes. So, um, so so for my personal belief, right? Uh, I think that the uh, kind of like the ninety percent efforts will go into solving the ten percent of the. Uh, cases. <laughs> so actually, you know, the devil is in those corner cases uh, where the, the uh, because of something that, you know, the robots haven't been trained on, uh, they will fail miserably and people would either make fun of it uh, or it will, you know, create some uh, consequences and people would say, oh, no, robots are not, not going to work. So I'm not going to buy any robot ever again. <laughs> so that, that, I think, that's a, the biggest challenge. Right? So how do we figure out these uh, corner cases, and also give you know people uh, the mindset that you know what 99% is gonna work okay you know just be a little bit patient. <laughs> um, but uh, but go go back to your question. Um, I think the getting the right uh, training data uh, for these robots in the uh, you know 
environment like home or hospital uh, is the biggest challenge. Uh, so if you think about self-driving car, right, they made huge, huge progress uh, in such a short time. And I believe that's because there's so much training data out there that they can uh, generate or get their hands on. You know, they, they can just have people driving uh, millions of miles on the street and collecting all these, you know, pictures, images, um, uh, videos, you know, sensing, uh, LIDAR information, all of that, and train their algorithm. But if you put ourselves in the home environment, you know, that is not available today, right? That's such a, a big data set. And so it's going to be hard to, um, to really, you know, get uh, some of these uh, use cases, you know, in the home environment uh, to be uh, polished. Uh, but I'm quite optimistic because, you know, there's a, a lot of good progress has been made in uh, areas such as deep learning, right? Um, uh, and, you know, in a way that uh, it allows uh, uh, us to provide uh, less uh, training data to the robot or to the uh, AI component of the robot uh, so that, you know, they can learn faster uh, and uh, be able to do uh, uh, more uh, kind of like a complex uh, tasks um, in the environment. That's uh, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I think the um, yeah, I mean, you touched on on another topic that I was going to uh, wanted to focus on, which is the the application of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning as a you know as really driving some acceleration in uh, in the ability to to solve problems. So, um, could you talk a bit about your just your views of the uh, the where we are currently in the market, some of the uh, for machine learning and AI, and and some of the what you consider to be some of the uh, most important developments that that are on, on, that are providing the foundation for the for the work that you're doing. Um, yes, uh, definitely. So you know, I believe that the um, you know, as I mentioned, right, uh, the uh, deep learning uh, area has been you know, very, very interesting, um, enable us to do different things that we wouldn't be able to uh, even dream of, like self-driving cars, you know, it's just like five years ago. Um, but besides that, you know, there are a couple of different uh, really exciting areas uh, uh, that I've been, you know, looking at, um, for example, collaborative robots. Uh, so I think that's a new mindset uh, in which, um, uh, that kind of developed uh, within the last uh, five to ten years that, you know, robots should be really uh, developed to fit within an environment with human around, right? Instead of just like a, in the industry or in the, the, the factory uh, that the robots just, you know, automation, right? Just, you know, just like do its task, uh, you know, repeated, uh, you know, millions of times uh, without the regards for the environment. And so these collaborative robots uh, really opened up, uh, you know, more application and use cases in first semi-structured environment, uh, for example, warehouses. Um, and then, you know, and the next step is into uh, totally unstructured environments like in the home uh, or outside, um, you know, uh, on the street. Uh, and so um, that's quite, quite interesting. And then the, the third uh, trend that um, is also exciting is that the, the cost of a lot of these hardware components 
uh, are coming down. And so, you know, that allows us to um, create, create much more affordable uh, products. Uh, and, you know, the advance of 3D printing uh, additive manufacturing uh, is amazing. Uh, that, I'm going to put a big bet on that as the new way to manufacture in the future. Because, you know, it just significantly cut down uh, the, uh, the time and cost for us to iterate on the product. And so it can shorten it, uh, it you know, uh, amazingly is one. But also it can save a lot on uh, kind of manufacturing time as well. Once we have uh, 3D printers that can print multiple materials or, you know, have multiple nozzles, uh, things like that. Uh, and so uh, at Army Labs, that's something that we've been uh, you know, kind of like apply ourselves. Uh, we've been pushing on using 3D printers uh, as our way to prototype and manufacture our robots. So 100% of, of our robots are manufactured uh, in-house in California using 3D printing. <laughs> so that's been uh, an interesting journey. Yeah, I I think what's um what's re- what'll be you know really fascinating and is is that really the combination of these technologies that uh, you know that that are really working together to to drive uh, you know next generation solutions. I'd love to get your perspective uh, a bit on uh, some history of the uh, of, of what we'll call kind of lower end trainable robots, right? There was um, uh, ba- Rodney Brooks's project, uh, Baxter, and uh, I know Universal uh, Universal Robots has had has has had some success with uh, with more affordable trainable robots. But but then you know you also had the uh, you know Willow Garage, which I guess have been working on a, a uh, robotics operating system at the time. They uh, they they didn't manage to. Uh, uh, to flourish, I, I think they they shut down a few years back. And uh, what what do you think was uh, was the reason that some of these earlier uh, approaches you know may have you know may have struggled? Was it an issue of the market or the technology or or, or other factors? Uh, I think it's all of the above. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, like, like we garage has been. Um, or was probably you know one of the uh, iconic you know robotics company right in the state. Uh, most of us you know could look up it to 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 them uh, as the pioneer uh, for the uh, kind of like robotics platform. Um, but you know if you look at some of the products that they come out with, like the PR2, um, it's still very expensive. You know, a um, couple hundred thousand. Yeah. And uh, and because it's yeah. Yeah, and because it's, it's, it's a general platform, uh, it's, it's still very bulky, right? And, uh, and the application uh, are not quite clear yet. Uh, so when you make a, a general, uh, 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 general purpose uh, robotics platform, uh, you're going to have to include a lot of functionalities or components that were probably uh, not needed for like a specific use case in mind. Right. And... Um, and and then on the other other hand, right, the market hasn't seen uh, like a killer app yet uh, for robots in the consumer space, and so coupled with those two, uh, it makes it a lot harder for uh, for these approach to get traction. Um, so 
in my opinion, uh, I think the the probably uh, you know a more favorable way to go forward is to create a platform in which it kind of have like a modular uh, approach that we can switch in and switch out different components uh, so that the developers can really design and build, develop uh, a specific robots for a specific use case uh, very quickly to keep the, the cost in terms of time and capital um, much lower and then test the market very, very quickly. See, you know, what is the attraction there uh, with the, um, the user or not. Uh, if not, then you know, iterate from there. Uh, otherwise, you know, you spend like uh, a couple million dollars mm. um, or like tens of millions of dollars and two years developing a robot for doing X-ray. And then people are just like, well, they, I don't care about X. Then that's, you know, and every other effort and money is going to be wasted. Right. So, so I think we need to shorten that uh, a lot and reduce the, uh, the resources that needed to do that. And so this is what we really want to achieve with Cambria. You know, creating this kind of ecosystem in which people can work together from all different angles and, you know, create this uh, uh, explosion of robotics application in the world, <laughs> which is why we named it Cambria, by the way, yeah. after the Cambrian yeah. uh, uh, explosion for biodiversity on Earth. <laughs> right. Uh, it's, and, and that's what we're getting a bit in innovation. So, yeah, which, which it's, and it's a great lead in to um, uh, just talk a bit about your, you know, your philosophy for, for Cambria. I mean, what's, what, what's the vision uh, that's, that really has motivated you to uh, pair up with your, your two co-founders? And I think what's really interesting, the way you guys describe it, each of you has uh, d- different areas of expertise that, uh, that come together. I, I, your, um, your co-founder, Jared, I see it's, uh, robotics and blockchain. You've got a, uh, expertise in AI and game theory, which I want to ask you about. And then uh, uh, Ting Shi Tan, his uh, ex- expertise in cloud computing and blockchain. So, uh, you know, between all three of you, you've got a, uh, you've got, you know, cover a lot of different, uh, you know, different bases in terms of the the technologies. Uh, yeah, what you know, how, how what are the what's what are your principal foundational principles for the uh, for Canberra and and what where you know where do you hope to go with with that with the uh, with the platform and, and, and the company? Right. Yeah. Uh, definitely. So, uh, well, first of all, I'm very lucky that uh, I get to work with all these uh, fantastic. Uh, uh, you know, the uh, team, <laughs> you know, the people have been uh, uh, very helpful. Um, so uh, a little bit of like, kind of a like background story of, of uh, uh, why we started Cambria. Uh, as we're building out our robots uh, at Army Lab, uh, we have experienced that, you know, we had to rebuild most of the, uh, the stack, uh, you know, down to like, you know, motor controller or battery charging. Uh, you know, so if you think about it, right, that's just astounding. Uh, you know, even like the, the smart battery charging, uh, you know, we cannot find anything out there on the web that allows us to do what we do. You know, it's only like maybe to like 80% uh, uh, what we need, uh, but because it's so close up, uh, we have to redo the whole thing. And so we've been thinking a lot about, you know, there gotta be a better way uh, to develop robotics um, uh, technology uh, and, you know, other frontier technology uh, than the way that things are being done right now, which is mostly in very silo projects, 
uh, very little collaboration across projects. Um, and um, and so we we've been thinking about that for a while, uh, and that's where uh, that's when the blockchain space you know kind of uh, you know happened last year. And then my game theoretical uh, background kind of kicked in. Uh, I was like, oh, you know what? Uh, maybe because people uh, don't have the right incentives to collaborate, right? So if you think if you think of the collaboration in uh, um, in business as uh, a game, <laughs> normal form game, I'm just gonna bring out my geek side here. Uh, people are just playing a game, right? It is like one shot game, for example, uh, Prisoner Dilemma. Uh, at Nash Equilibrium, you know, the everyone is gonna cheat, you know, in a way, right. non-collaborate. Uh, but if we remodel it as a repeated game, so that you know, well, people will play the game over again. Uh, now, all of a sudden, there's certain very interesting game theoretical approach uh, arise, which is, you know, some, we can enforce certain behavior uh, out of this game uh, so that we can uh, not only incentivize but enforce collaboration between uh, the players in the game. And so that's well, uh, how uh, we design the Cambria platform. Uh, so, yeah. Are, are you, and you're, so you're really applying uh, this is the game theory is really interesting angle because I think you hit on one of the, the really the critical aspects of designing a uh, you know a, a networked system that provides incentives for the participants. Could you, you know, first of all talk a little bit about your background in game theory and what uh, what drew you to the discipline? Uh, and I have to say. By the way, that I in in business school 20 years ago, I had a, a terrific professor who uh, had introduced who, who taught microeconomics uh, mm-hmm. as game theory, and he he participated in some oh. of the spectrum auctions, and it it was a lot of game theory is very counterintuitive, I think, to. Uh, you know, to, to uh, people who are not initiated in, in understanding, but it's—I think it's—it's it's just fascinating, and and the fact that you are applying that to, you know, token economics or or uh, you know, blockchain system design, I think is so 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 relevant, and and I'd love to get your a little bit of your background and perspective, and and um, uh, you know how how you. Uh, how you apply what you've learned in and from your work in game theory to uh, um, to, to Cambria, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I um, so when when I was an undergrad at Carnegie Mellon, uh, I did a bunch of research on robot soccer. So basically, programmed the uh, the Sony eyeball dog. I don't know if you remember it, uh, but these uh, little robotic dogs uh, programmed for a team of them. To play soccer uh, against uh, another team, uh, and so there's a lot of uh, machine learning components, but there's also a lot of kind of like coordination uh, between these robots, and so uh, that's what really got me um, uh, you know, interested in in this space. Um, you know, kind of like a multi-agent system with game theoretical uh, angle and machine learning angle, and so I wanted to continue that. Uh, so when I um, uh, when I started my uh, PhD at Stanford, uh, I met with my advisor, uh, Professor Yuash Shoham, um, at the Stanford. And uh, one area that uh, he was working on um, 
that really caught my interest is how do you learn in game, right? How do you come up with a machine learning algorithm uh, for these uh, software uh, programs? Uh, we call it agent, autonomous software program, um, that they can learn how to play in different game settings against some other openings that might be learning as well. And so now open up like a whole new area of uh, thinking because as you are learning, your opponents are also learning. So in a sense, you can even teach the opponents uh, to do certain things that you want them to do, right, in favor of your outcome. And so it's, it's a really fascinating area. Um, and that's my uh, kind of uh, uh, the research and um, the, uh, the, the background of uh, game, theory, game theory. And so when it comes to Cambria, um, uh, one of the the uh, the application is that I've been we've been thinking about okay so incentivize developers to contribute to the platform is not hard right um, you can use tokens uh, or or even uh, fiat right to incentivize them um, but how do you ensure that they will continue to collaborate uh, and you know contribute in the long term to the platform. And also protect their IP, make sure that you know they they are not ripped off uh, by contributing and sharing this technology. And so we come up with uh, something we call proof of violation, you know, um, uh, which is a decentralized protocol uh, in a sense that allow uh, crowd protection, allow people to make sure that uh, anyone who are using the technology uh, for commercial purposes. Uh, will have to pay a licensing fee back to the platform. But if they violate the licensing fee, uh, you know, they will incur a severe penalty in which uh, that would make their whatever gain they have right, in the short run uh, with you know, cheating. Uh, it's not going to you know, um, work uh, there uh, uh, of that because of the, the uh, steep uh, penalty. And so um, that's, uh, you know, in, in the technical term, we call it green trigger strategy. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, that's the, one of the, um, the uh, uh, strategy that we uh, deploy uh, in designing the Cambria token model. Oh, that's really interesting. So it, it, I guess in a, in a with, an, with open source software, right, you always have the risk that, uh, that people, don't don't pay for it if they if they, if they don't have to and I guess yeah they just take the technology and run away with it and never contribute back right so the incentives uh, how do you how do you uh, incentivize people to participate in the uh, in your ecosystem uh, do the uh, do the do you, do you use the tokens or uh, you know is there or a system of, of rewards and, and penalties that that accrue. How does that yeah, work? That's a, uh, yeah. So um, you know, we, we think of it as kind of like the the uh, open platform uh, for people to collaborate and develop new technology. Uh, but an important um, uh, angle here is that it has to be driven by something very concrete in terms of. Uh, market demand or potential, right? Um, you know, technology, just for the sake of technology, is not something that uh, we are uh, too excited about. 
Right. Uh, and so we create Campia uh, with different components. And one of the components, uh, the core component is uh, sort of like a marketplace for uh, new technology. And so uh, companies or you know, entrepreneurs can put down these prices or bounties uh, for some technology that uh, they need for their market or they can see like a huge application potential. And uh, once we put that on, uh, on Cambria, uh, developers around the world can collaborate uh, and compete for these bounties, um, which is, by the way, uh, it's encoded in smart contract with you know, winning criteria and all that. Um, so this way, uh, when a team of, of people, um, they might not even know each other, right? So one guy from Russia can work with one guy from China, can work with another guy in the U.S. Uh, as long as they, you know, they, they put their uh, kind of like uh, the sharing of reward in a smart contract, uh, then once they win that bounty, um, the, the bounty then will get split between uh, the people in this team, Okay. And the technology will then get incorporated onto the platform I see. Uh, and I see. open to other people so that uh, other people can give up on top of it uh, so that they don't have to reinvent the wheel. So this way we can, you know, uh, allow technology to get developed at a much faster speed uh, than just, you know, normally just like one project at a time. Um, right. Right. And so that's on the incentive for developers. Uh, but then the next step is, you know, we'll, we'll allow anyone to do R&D uh, with the technology uh, from Cambria to be free. Uh, but anyone who wants to commercialize it will have to pay a licensing fee back to the platform. And this will then get split between uh, the developers, the original uh, person or like team who put out the bounties, uh, the token holders who back this uh, project, who invested into this project. Right? And so this way, you know, it's like a win-win-win uh, for everyone. So that's a really interesting use of the blockchain technology for, uh, you know, for, for, you know, for building an incentive around open source development. Um, I'd like to shift now and ask you a bit about the uh, tech community in, in Vietnam. I mean, you had mentioned. I mean, you've been, uh, you know, in in the U.S. for uh, twenty years with, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur and as a student. But uh, but there are I, I and I hear from several of my you know my good friends who uh, mentor and travel in Vietnam uh, that there's just an amazing amount of talent and entrepreneurial energy. Uh, could you talk a little bit about you know what's uh, what the uh, the kind of the state of, of uh, technology and, and the entrepreneurial community in, in Vietnam and and you know where uh, if for Americans who were or uh, anybody else thinking of of like looking for looking for talent or looking for good projects you know what what's a what is a good way to to engage to um, you know to try to harness some of that uh, that talent. Uh, yeah, so I think uh, Vietnam has uh, one of the, the big advantages in terms of the workforce. Uh, we have, you know, a large uh, population of um, uh, younger uh, professionals, um, and um, 
I think you know, uh, traditionally Vietnam has been quite strong in terms of uh, foundational science uh, and uh, uh, programming, computer science. Uh, we have a lot of good talents there uh, as um, you know, programmers, uh, software developers, um, and that's that's still growing. Um, there's a lot of uh, incentives uh, put together by the government or some big companies there uh, try to you know, increase further uh, the quality and also the quantity of software developers in Vietnam. Um, and so I think the talent pool. Uh, there is, you know, probably one of the biggest advantages that Vietnam has. Um, and, uh, you know, that's something that uh, I would recommend um, uh, entrepreneurs or startups founder uh, or even big corporation uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, pay attention to uh, because, you know, you can uh, really uh, um, make good use of, uh, you know, that, that access. Um, the cost is still uh, much lower uh, than the software engineer in the U.S., uh, but, you know, I think the quality of uh, the top talents there uh, are very comparable uh, to the talents here. So, um, you know, that's definitely something quite exciting. Uh, for us, Cambria, we, we do set up um, a, a desk office there in Vietnam, <laughs> try to harness some of that. Sure. Um, yeah. And uh, in terms of, like, the uh, entrepreneur uh, space uh, startup, has been kind of like a, a trend, <laughs> uh, you know, for the last 10 years in Vietnam. Uh, a lot of people get excited about becoming an entrepreneur um, and, you know, they, they, uh, they're putting together all sorts of different applications or different products. Um, Vietnam has a really good uh, mobile penetration ratio um, and, you know, coupled with the younger population, uh, people you know, are very open to uh, e-commerce, you know, uh, and, you know, buying new products, trying out new services online, things like that. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot of good potentials there. Uh, several big funds are coming into Vietnam um, and, you know, set up uh, investment vehicles there as well. Um, I think for the last 10 years, the GDP of Vietnam is uh, one of the fastest uh, growing in the world uh, as well. And so, you know, you can see that's um, um, a lot of opportunities there. Yeah, it's it's great. I think not that many people, uh, are, you know, have have you know quite paid attention to the the progress there. Uh, you know, people do hear a lot about what's going on in in certainly in China and you know Korea uh, and, and Singapore, but but I think Vietnam is um, you know is, is definitely. I'm, I hear I hear much more more about it, and uh, it's it's great it's great to see the um, you know this 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 talent getting connected into the really into the global uh, global marketplace. So um, you know, I, I do want to ask um, you know looking forward, I mean, what are what are some of the concerns that you have? I mean, you you do have an enormous amount of. Uh, you know, great technology opportunities and markets, but uh, you know, in, in your you know, in in your view, you know, what are some of the big challenges uh, to you know to realizing your vision of uh, you know, much more affordable and and uh, uh, universally available uh, you know, ro- robotics for consumers? Um, yeah, so. Um there are a couple of challenges, uh, you know, I think um, one is uh, kind of like the, 
like the legal and also um, like uh, personal adoption of this technology. Right? So you know a lot of you know good uh, advanced technology coming out uh, that might be you know uh, provide a lot of value. Uh, but just because the legal framework is not set up mm. uh, as well because it's too new, uh, it might take a long time to kind of educate the consumer and get them used to this uh, technology and product. Um, and I think that that, that could be um, quite challenging. Um, uh, and uh, one more challenge uh, or more like a concern that uh, I have is that um, we tend to, uh, you know, focus on uh, Different, uh, some very specific areas where we see the immediate uh, profit, uh, but we tend to forget other areas that are as important, uh, but you know not not immediately profitable. Uh, so, for example, uh, I believe that uh, pollution right is a huge issue that we're gonna have to, uh, or we are already dealing with um, uh, right now. Um, but things like ocean pollution. Uh, with plastic and all that stuff, um, it, it's going to become like a much bigger uh, issue uh, soon. Uh, but right now, not that many, uh, not much investment are going to this space because, you know, it's just, uh, people don't see a way to uh, make profit right away. And so how do we kind of like, um, uh, you know, mitigate this and so that, you know, we can uh, put investment into these sort of projects that have a longer, uh, longer term, longer return, but uh, would be crucial for uh, our sustainability uh, of our society. Yeah, and when you look at uh, where you're most optimistic on, on, on the on the flip side, you know what are uh, what are some of the areas where you you may expect some of the uh, most uh, Im- impactful change to come sooner than. Uh, then later. Uh, that, that's a that's a good question. Huh. Um, so, <laughs> so I think I think a couple of the different things that have uh, been quite exciting. Uh, agriculture is one area that you know I'm I'm very optimistic. Um, so you know in the U.S. we probably don't see as much, uh, but I think you know like all these advanced technology uh, in agriculture could really boost up. Uh, the productivity, right? Um, and this is important because, you know, we are still growing very quickly, uh, our world population. And, you know, without significantly increasing the productivity uh, of our agricultural um, uh, activities, we're going to run out of food, you know? <laughs> and so uh, I think this is the way, you know, with AI, uh, robotics, and you know, some other biotech, uh, hopefully we can uh, mitigate uh, the um, um, the shortest uh, uh, of food uh, issue. Uh, another a- uh, area that I'm quite uh, in, uh, excited about is uh, healthcare. Uh, so I believe uh, AI and uh, robotics as well uh, have a lot of good application in this area. Can you know really uh, bringing down the cost of healthcare services and also uh, increasing the quality of the services. Um, you know, I don't think technology is going to be able to replace doctors and nurses right away, but these technology can augment, you know, whatever they're doing to really reduce error rate uh, and, you know, increase the quality of diagnosis, increase the quality 
um, of um, treatment um, in, and, and the quality of the services as well. Uh, so those are the two areas that uh, I'm uh, most excited about. That's great. Well, the one final question I like to ask on, on all the podcasts is a uh, is a recommend a book recommendation or a resource recommendation that uh, uh, that you could share with with our listeners. <laughs> uh, and it's well, a tough a lot one. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, you know, since we're talking about uh, innovation, technology, and all that. Um, I, I think one of the books that uh, came um, immediately to mind is uh, the book called Originals uh, by Adam Grant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Originals, yeah. Uh, so that, that is a fascinating book, you know, talking about uh, how we can really push uh, new ideas, um, you know, uh, new innovation um, at the right time and right place uh, to make the, the, the most impact uh, out of it. Yeah, it's a quite interesting book. <laughs> no, that's a that's a great recommendation, uh, and 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 thank you very much for that. Uh, well, anyway, this is listen to this has been a, a fascinating conversation, and I'm I'm so glad we were able to uh, to connect um, again. This is Ed McGuire, Insight Partner with Momenta Partners, and we've been speaking with uh, Dr. Tukbu. Um, uh, and we are we'll, we'll include the, the recommendations in the uh, in the show notes. But uh, I, thank you so much for, for taking the time, and uh, very much looking forward to seeing seeing your progress in the future. That's fantastic. Please keep in touch, and uh, you know, thank you for uh, having me on the show, and thanks for the listener. Uh, yeah, um, looking forward to uh, yeah. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.